Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. And this is Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. So this week we are debating homelessness, the national crisis or epidemic that it is, and what, if anything, to do about it. So we're very excited to bring on two great guests. Who are they, Batya? We're so excited to have Jason Rance and Shahid Buttar here to discuss the homelessness crisis. I don't know about you, Josh, but I think about this all the time. I think about the 30,000 homeless children in America. It's just so hard to fathom that the richest country in the world has a problem like that. So I'm really excited to hear some solutions from these guys. What about you? Well, I hope we do hear that. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I just moved here to Miami. I've literally been here for a week or two. And, I, you know, I've seen any number of kind of homeless people literally on the sidewalk right outside. It's always said everywhere you see it. I, I moved here from Denver, which has just an, a, an abysmal homelessness problem, just tents everywhere in downtown. It's actually quite sad to see. But um, hopefully we delve into the specifics of why this is the case and what we can do about it. So we're very excited to turn to those guys on the other side of a quick break. But before we do so, do you want to give a quick plug to our sponsor, Herzog Wine Cellars? You can go to HerzogWine.com. They're very generous to sponsor the podcast. We are grateful for that. And go to HerzogWine.com and start your wine adventure today. But on the other side, we're debating homelessness. Stay with us. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home? isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. This week we're debating the homelessness crisis. So I guess we're going to be debating whether it is a crisis in the first place and then what, if anything, we should do about it. So we're very excited to bring on our guests. And Badia, who are those guests? So we're super excited to have Jason Rance with us, host of the Seattle-based radio show, The Jason Rance Show. And we're really excited to have Shahid Buttar, a former congressional candidate who was a challenger to Nancy Pelosi in 2020. Jason, Shahid, welcome to Newsweek's The Debate. So we're here to talk about homelessness. Um, There seems to be a huge crisis in our nation. As of January 2020, there were 580,000 Americans experiencing homelessness. 30% were families, 37,000 were veterans, 34,000 were children. And the pandemic has obviously exacerbated these numbers. How do we fix it? What should we do to address this homelessness crisis? Jason, your thoughts. Uh, my, My top line thoughts are separate out who is homeless and why. And I think when talking about homelessness, there is a tendency to treat everyone as if they're just down on their luck and they fell on hard times, which is not uh, the case clearly for everyone who is homeless. And yet we have a tendency to talk about things in such a specific way with one end goal in mind that's usually driven by um, housing activists who who want, you know, quote unquote, affordable housing. And, and that means different things in different areas. But we have to address the, the reason why so many people are homeless. And unless you prioritize folks who are dealing with mental health issues that have not gone addressed or an addiction crisis or the folks who are in fact on hard times, you're never going to come up with a solution that helps everyone. Each of those groups of people needs specific solutions. And I, I have, I've seen the tendency to ignore the fact that we've got so many people living out on the streets because of a mental health issue or an addiction. And, and that's making the problem worse. Shahid? 
I appreciate the recognition, Jason, of all the different intersections. And I would just note that we do absolutely have to agree on why people end up homeless in the first place. And across the various uh, situations that drive people into being unhoused, the one common element is that we treat housing in the United States like a commodity. It's an object of speculation, which is to say the cost has been driven out of the reach increasingly of entirely too many Americans. You, know, you noted in the intro, Batia, that over half a million Americans sleep without shelter every night, including tens of thousands of children. And it is unconscionable, period, full stop. I mean, I, I hear, Jason, your uh, attempt to thoughtfully separate people's situations. Uh, and I would just, you know, note having encountered housing insecurity myself and the complete arbitrariness of access to housing, it is in fact a irrefutable fact. We have more than enough housing in this country for everyone to have shelter but we don't allocate housing in any way according to need, right? There's, if you took all of the Airbnbs, for instance, or the vacation rentals that are available for short-term rentals and they were available to people to live in, and if we treated housing as a human right and the public social good that it is, instead of, and as long as we're talking about intersections, it's, I think <clears throat> we do a disservice to the issue without recognizing that one of the leading causes of homelessness is medical bankruptcy. So it's not only the case that we refuse as a country to allow housing as a human right, and as a result, half a million Americans don't have shelter, we also deny other basic human rights. And because people have to pay out of their pockets for for-profit healthcare, which is to say not just for their medicine and their care, but also the you know fancy cars and vacation homes of pharmaceutical and health insurance executives, that forces people into the street. We have a intersectional public policy in the United States that recognizing that everyone gets old, that everybody gets sick, we systematically drive homelessness. And we could talk a lot here about the roots in, uh, you know, one place I joined Jason and sort of identifying a common concern is the uh, independent vector of mental illness and the risk that people are placed in through it. And I would just, again, note that back into the devolution of social services that we suffered in the 80s. There's a historical arc to how we got here that's important also to consider. I'll leave it at that for now. So Jason, I'd love to hear your response to that. Do you think that housing is a right? Is it a human right? Is it a right that the government should be providing to all Americans? This idea that it's a human right, uh, it's a bumper sticker slogan to me because I've heard that thrown around so many different times. I don't know what it means. If you're saying that you have the right to live in the house of your choosing, and if you so choose to get that luxury Airbnb rent-free, then no, of course not. I don't think anyone should agree to that. And I think that we obviously have to respect uh, you know, housing uh, uh, or property rights of the individual who actually owns the property. Th this idea, though, still that it's about housing just ignores the actual underlying concern. These folks were not born without a home. At some point they had a home and at some point they did not. And so what happened between the time of having a house and not having a house? Is it that they lost a job and then maybe didn't have the necessary skills to compete in the workforce in the industry that is popular where they happen to live? Is it because of, again, a mental health issue that had gone untreated? Is it because of a lack of family structure that maybe made it more made them more susceptible to not getting something treated that needed to be treated? Simply putting someone who's out on the street right now because of their mental health issue or an addiction, for example, you just put them in a home doesn't treat why they were houseless uh, as folks on the left 
sort of rephrase this to begin with. They're going to end up back on the streets if you don't treat that mental health issue or that addiction, or again, give them the training that they need, the education that they might need to get back into the workforce. Jason, I, you know, I, I hear Shahid talking about how he p- seems to pin a lot of the blame on 1980-style kind of Reagan-Thatcher deregulation. I guess, from my perspective, and I would imagine your perspective, it's kind of it's actually the 1950s, more the 1960s that are actually a lot to blame here for. And kind of, mm-hmm. from, from my perspective, the the liberalizing of mandatory commitment and things like that of people who actually are suffering from mental illnesses and not being able to. Um, involuntarily commit them. Um, so I, I'd be curious for your thoughts on that. Am I am I off there, or do you would you agree with that sentiment that that is actually what's underlying to blame for a lot of our problems today? It, it's definitely a, a part of the issue. What you just mentioned in the and obviously this goes state to state on involuntary commitment laws right. and how it all works. But I mean, this idea that we're going to go back and constantly blame Reagan in the '80s when it is 2021 when we have put hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars every single year into the systems that we're told will work, but actually have not worked, the situation has gotten worse, it is just ludicrous to me. We have to have a more honest conversation about the ideas that are being pushed right now in the cities where homelessness is growing out of control or as out of control as it has become. That hasn't worked. We can't keep going into the bad say, oh, it's Reagan's fault. No, I mean, you've had plenty of time. The people who were homeless as an adult under Reagan are not the bulk of the people who are currently homeless. And we have completely different institutions of of, um, authority, people who are in positions of authority, putting in place all these policies. Those are the ones to blame. And there seems to be a reluctance. And I take this from the position of Seattle, where we are now in year either 16 or 17 of the 10-year plan to end homelessness. At some point, you have to look at a mirror and say, maybe the people who are in charge right now and have had the power for so long to implement these different policies, maybe they're the problem and they're the ones that need to be changed. So, Shad, I'd be curious how you respond to that. I mean, I, I just I literally just moved to Miami, but I spent the past year in Denver, which has just an, an abominable, a truly abysmal homeless epidemic. And what what I saw there, which I previously lived in Texas for years, certainly kind of reminds me of, of Austin, Texas, uh, uh, very much so as well. Obviously, a, a, a large number of the of, of people who are homeless um, do not have mental illnesses. A lot of them obviously have just fallen on genuinely tough times. They've been dealt a hard hand in life and so forth. But over and over and over again, I have seen people who just are clearly mentally ill, who clearly are drug addicts. And I, I, I guess I would just like to push you a little more here. Um, what is the connection necessarily between 1980-style deregulation and the fact that we're not currently doing anything with folks like that? The very direct correlation is that before Reagan, we had institutions, federal institutions, that housed people who were mentally ill, and Reagan destroyed them, and now they're on the street. So that's that's a very direct correlation. The other connection here that's a little bit less visible often goes overlooked, and it's interesting that it hasn't come up yet in this conversation, is affordable housing. We used to, as a country, invest billions of dollars every year. The high point for this program was in the late 1970s. Uh, and we invested, I think the max for that program was $13 billion. These are community development block grants from housing and urban development that enable uh, cities and, and states to incentivize the building of affordable housing. Not only has the budget for those programs collapsed, over the generation since, but Congress went further in the late 90s, 
Congress doubled down on that failed approach by passing uh, an amendment to an appropriations bill in 98 called the Faircloth Amendment, which basically prevents the federal government from building new public housing. So we have effectively ducked into this punch. Now, we're biting off a few pieces of the puzzle, let's say, but failing to complete it. The key part of this puzzle is the privatization of speculation markets. So if you look at the way we treat housing as a speculation-driven commodity as opposed to a human right, it facilitated everything from private equity now, buying housing stock around the country, creating an artificial supply shortage. Um, and this relates to a point that Jason noted that it's uh, important to have an honest conversation. And I appreciate that, even if so much of the conversation we seem to be having is short of that. You know, there are so many straw men that are already emerging. Uh, when we talk about a right to housing, Jason was describing that in terms that, that nobody articulates. You know, nobody describes a right to housing as a right to live rent-free in the Airbnb of your choice. That's ridiculous. Uh, but a right to housing does mean that our government should prioritize the needs of the American people instead of things like missiles and bombs. It does mean things that if you, like for instance, if you have mental, mental illness or mental health challenges, that you should have access to services instead of being kicked out into the street. That's our current public policy. But and again, not, a right to housing. But it's not. Very, I mean, right, right now, there very clearly are, regardless of, of the area that we're talking about, places that you can go to get assistance. We have assistance available, for example, here in Seattle, but we don't actually enforce any of the laws. We don't have a carrot and stick approach. And so we say, we'll wait for you as you're dealing with this mental health issue or addiction. When you're ready, we'll take you in. But we've got the beds. Have you ever up. talked to a homeless veteran, Jason? I have talked to many homeless veterans. I do yeah. lots of work actually in the community talking with people who are homeless. I, have I any you, of them ever told you that they have immediate access to services? Have you ever heard that story from a homeless veteran? I hear lots of people who say that they might not, but that's not the truth. There are people right now, for example. They're just lying to you then. So you know the facts as the person who reads a lot other than the people encountering I, and experiencing the challenge you're describing. Correct. I do know the facts on the ground and what beds are available and what resources are available. And I'll give you a very real world example. It's not related to a veteran, but it's related to a homeless encampment that was just cleared here in Seattle about maybe two and a half weeks or so ago. And a crew went down there, a news crew, and asked, why are you still living out on the streets? And they say, There's, they've not made any beds available for us. We don't have any resources. But as a matter of fact, provable fact, the city has gone down there up until that point four times in the last two months, specifically with offers of shelter that they've turned down. So if they're saying- Do you know if no, those offers of shelter come with conditions? Like following basic rules, some of them do. There's some- Or uh, maybe like not having a family or a partner or any belongings or submitting to the jurisdiction some, of law enforcement agents to say when you can come and go or under what terms you can live there. Well, you really yeah. might want to actually like look at the facts before you opine about things. All right, let me let me let me let me let me. Uh, this let me is this, this is a civil a discussion. Second. Okay, um, let me let me. So I want to. Well, I'm just put, grounding uh, it in wanna... honest conversation. Okay, so so Jason is presenting facts, and you have a different set, and it's it, this is great. It's really important that we get to the to the heart of this. I want to um, focus a little bit on something that I think will help us kind of get over this hump and into the next part of the discussion, which is you know I think advocates do agree with you or seem to agree with you, Shai, that a shortage of low income 
income housing is actually a very, very much number one cause in rising homelessness. But if you look at where homelessness is the worst, it's all in these very liberal coastal cities. So here are the top American cities and their homeless populations. So New York City, 77,000 homeless people. Los Angeles, 63,000 homeless people. Seattle, where Jason is, 11,000. San Jose, 9,000. Oakland, 8,000 homeless individuals. One out of every four people experiencing homelessness lives either in New York City or in Los Angeles. So what I want to ask you both is what do you think explains this? Like how did liberals end up presiding over the most expensive cities and what should be done about this? Let's start with you, Jason. I think in part because they lean into policies that rely on a heavier tax burden for the wealthy than uh, they ought to. And as a result, they end up pushing some folks who are wealthy either out of the city or they just push them into tax shelters, which means you're not necessarily getting the tax revenue that you expected. And then when you get the tax revenue, for example, here in Seattle, I mean, people are paying a lot in taxes, particularly the wealthy and now businesses as well. The problem is they don't just stop spending. They keep asking for more and they keep growing while pushing this idea of sort of this urbanist environment where you can walk to work and it's great and you never even have to be, get in a car. So we're going to cut down all the, the lanes, which forces you to stay local. But by the way, we're not going to allow developers to build over eight stories high, which then keeps the supply down which means the folks in Seattle who make really, really good money working at Amazon take up all of the housing here. They walk to work. They get rid of the car, pushing the folks who can't afford it outside, raising the cost of living of Seattle. So when we talk about the cost of living and housing affordability, you can tie a direct line in most cases, not always, to specific policies and and ideology that's used to grow a city. They're the ones pushing these people out. Mm -hmm. Jihad? It's the market that pushes people out of their homes. Government policies and taxes don't do that. The coastal cities you described have been sites of remarkable appreciation in housing costs, completely unsustainable appreciation in housing costs, and that's entirely market-driven. Each of those cities happen to be particularly desirable places to live, and there's a lot of demand to live in those places. San Francisco in particular has become so phenomenally unaffordable for people who have lived here uh, for generations, uh, that we literally have a differently composed city. You know, the gentrification that has taken place in this city over the last generation has literally shifted the racial character of the city. Uh, you know, we have our African American population in San, in San Francisco is down to four percent, and it was substantial a generation ago. And housing is a big part of that. Um, there's a piece here that we can't overlook. And that relates to sociological trends. And I want to particularly bring on the table the reversal of white flight in the 90s. So one of the things that happened in those coastal cities is that a generation of people who had left cities in the 60s and 70s started coming back, particularly wealthy people. And they were driving the development of real estate, particularly in luxury housing. So most of the housing development that we see in these cities is not affordable. It's not meant for families. It's designed for exactly the person who Jason described, the wealthy Amazon worker, you know, loft buildings, luxury style loft buildings. And and that's the housing stock that the market will build if we allow it to proceed unfettered. That's exactly why public housing is so important. But we haven't had any kind of commitment to public housing in this country in a generation. And we are feeling 
and witnessing the very predictable results of it. So just a, just a necessarily quick follow up here. So Shahed, just to clarify, Badia opened this question by talking about how I think she said 25 percent of the homeless in this country are in New York City and Los Angeles, which, of course, are two iconic liberal run democratically controlled cities for the better part of a half century, if not longer than that. You're talking about the market. Do you not make any connection whatsoever between Democratic Party policies and the plight of the homelessness in these massive blue cities? Oh, no, absolutely. It's why I ran to replace Pelosi. I mean, just to be clear, Nancy Pelosi, as a leading Democrat in Congress, presided over this right-wing assault on affordable housing, the the devolution in federal spending on affordable housing. That was a bipartisan commitment. Corporate Democrats joined Republicans. So it's absolutely been a failure of our corporate Congress and the corruption of our political system by capital undermining the needs of the American people. I mean, part of your question, I guess, Josh, presumes or maybe insinuates that Democrats in some way have stood up for working people. Uh, and unfortunately, at least since the 90s, that has not been the agenda of the Democratic Party, at least at the national level. Now, again, there's variation at the local one. Some cities, I think, have done a much better job than others. Here in San Francisco, the the real innovation I would point to is the uh, the basically quasi-residential facilities that the city set up where people who are unhoused can live not in congregant settings that expose them to COVID, but in safe settings that are overseen, that allow them to come and go, allow them transitional opportunities to get on their feet. They've been citing as cited as models that are proliferating around the country to cities, including Los Angeles, which you mentioned. Those are really where the solutions in here, again, I just bifurcated. There's the macro solutions, which include federal interventions like repealing the fair cloth amendment, investing in affordable housing, checking and balancing the market and its failures that we're observing here. And at the local level, particularly, programs like the ones that San Francisco set up, programs like public bathrooms to allow people to live in dignity, even if they don't have uh, permanent shelter, programs like transitional services to help people like the kinds that Jason was describing. And, and part of the straw men that we were talking about before was this idea that people who advocate a right for housing don't acknowledge the difference between episodic homelessness or chronic homelessness uh, or transitional homelessness. You know, that people do become homeless for different reasons. And we should have, we do have in those very same cities, Josh, that you describe, robust social services for people who need them. Uh, and I'm proud of that. And I do think that the examples in these cities reflect the best that we can do in the face of market tides that the public policy has been insufficient to combat. I, I just I just push back just slightly on on one piece here. So th there's been this move, for example, to to purchase hotels or motels and and basically create space for people who are homeless to bring them inside. And they're supposed to be given all of these services. And yes, there are some rules because you have to have some rules just like everybody else. And they've been so far not particularly productive in getting people through any programs. And the ones who are the hardest to reach have a tendency to be, um, you know, not just chronically homeless, but repeat offenders who actually break laws. And that brings down not just the quality of life for folks who live in these cities, but it also means we're pouring more and more money into these individuals to try to get them to follow some rules. And so at some point, if we start to maybe focus a lot more of our attention on the chronically homeless and not push these ideas of kind of going light and not having so many rules on them, we might be able to not just help them, but also save money in the long term, which would then mean we can reinvest in the people who are homeless, who we can 
have a better or easier time reaching. I mean, this idea of just building housing, uh, Los Angeles, it costs over $500,000 per affordable housing unit to put together uh, based on an audit that was done a little under a year ago. This idea that the the local government or even the federal government can do this better than the private market, I think, is not only not true, but I think it's counterproductive. Maybe we should be partnering a little bit more. We have to take a quick break. Uh, Shahid will definitely give you a chance to respond to that. This is Newsweek's The Debate, and we will be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. This week we are debating the national homelessness crisis and what to do about it. We are honored to have on Jason Rance and Shahab Buttar. So Shah, just before break, we had Jason uh, talking about um, market and, and, and whether uh, it is to blame or whether it's not to blame. And you were kind of chomped in the bit to respond. So definitely want to give you that opportunity. Appreciate that. Uh, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about Jason's response was this idea that maybe one size for the solution doesn't fit all. And I certainly agree there. And the idea that building housing is not the only solution to homelessness, I would also agree. It's a critical part of the solution, but it also has to include things like services. It's one reason why the safe sleeping sites that I was describing here in San Francisco are so important. The I would say that the current crisis that we're examining reflects not just the failures of the market, but another aspect that I'm grateful to, for Jason bringing into the conversation, and that's the criminalization of poverty. So for entirely too long, various aspects of being unhoused have been not just criminalized, but predatorily criminalized. And it's been a big part of the historical attempt to solve the problem that has unfortunately exacerbated it. And you know, here in San Francisco, for instance, we've had, uh, particularly since the pandemic, multiple rounds of public encampments being effectively swept. You know, and that is to say, law enforcement coming in, seizing people's property, or the Department of Public Works disposing it. And, and a lot of, I've part of a group that, or I was part of a group that was quite active in doing things like uh, distributing tents and camping gear to people so that they could stay warm and dry, uh, and particularly during the wet season, or what used to be the wet season, and it increasingly is now just one year-long wildfire season. But and, and the city was seizing those donated camping supplies. And that is completely not just an abuse of a right to housing, that's an abuse of multiple human rights and the role that law enforcement has played, an entirely inappropriate role, I dare say, uh, has, has done more or less nothing to solve the problem. And so when we look at the idea of a robust intersectional approach that would build more public housing, create more services, we're coming to that solution informed by decades of failure by the market and ineffective interventions by law enforcement. In cities where law enforcement have stepped aside and not gotten involved, homelessness has gotten worse. Seattle homelessness has gotten tremendously bad because of specific policies that took policing completely out of it. And then when you go into cities that are nearby, like Bellevue or Marysville and Monroe, where they actually have officers as part of the solution, their homelessness crisis has gone to problems and have gone to issues that they've nearly solved. 
this idea that we are criminalizing poverty. Do you think is, they've solved them or just made them less visible? I think they've solved them based on the data that they have put people into actual programs, keeping them accountable, and then getting them on the right path. In some cases, it can be more expensive to do that in the short term, but I think in the long term, it's not. I, I keep hearing, again, this sort of bumper sticker point of criminalizing poverty. We're criminalizing criminal behavior. So for example, at an encampment where people are fighting and threatening uh, to attack passersby that cannot be allowed to stay, that's dangerous for the people who are nearby and it's dangerous for the people who live there at City Hall Park. It's also right? not what I'm defending. I'm but, talking but, about homeless kids yeah, and having belongings not, on the street. Yes, and homeless kids shouldn't be allowed to sleep outside. They should be put inside. So It sounds like you're advocating for a right for housing. No, I'm saying we should be putting them in the shelters that are very clearly available in a lot of these cases and the situations in which they're not, we're not doing those sweeps. It's against the law to do those kinds of sweeps. What you're talking about when we say encampments, th there's this like weird, it's not necessarily romanticism around it, but but it's it's not being portrayed as what they are. The average encampment that we're talking about here are folks who are surrounded by filth, human waste, use needles that is not healthy for them so when we when someone like me says that law enforcement has to be a critical part of this it's because you do need to have some sort of consequence for folks who are the ones who need it and are not dealing with an and you know an uh, an addiction or a mental health issue the folks who are in fact just on hard times sure they sometimes need the threat of law enforcement involvement to get them on the right path and if we're unwilling to do that, then they're going to stay there for a while. So, Jason, can you if you were if you were the mayor of Seattle, what would your approach be? Can you just walk us through it? How would you solve this problem? The, the first thing I would do is empower police to be a part of the process. When they were a part of the process, we were seeing much more compliance. I have a pretty basic uh, position here. If someone's dealing with a mental health issue, we give them the treatment. You'd have to change some laws to you know, for lack of a better term, force it. But when someone who is in a position where they cannot make their own decisions and you cannot find family members, you do have to do something for their safety and the safety of others. For the folks who are just down on their luck, I believe strongly in partnering with private businesses and saying as part of a bigger program that will be funded by the city, we will ensure that we're gonna get the training that they need and if you give them a job, we will give you either a tax credit, tax break, whatever we want to say, however we want to phrase around it. We are going to ensure that that person gets the job on time. We're going to have them space here so that they can shower and shave and sleep and have access to electricity and support. We're going to pick them up after their shift. We are going to guarantee, if you're willing, to take that risk and employ these folks. The folks who are choosing to sleep on the streets, who are not taking up offers of shelter, at that point, I do tend to lose my uh, sort of a sympathy for them. You either leave if you're breaking the law or we throw you in jail. It's up to you. We'll, we'll give you the option of going in. Yes, yeah, it is fascinating because <laughs> it actually works. We're gonna give it you the option. Sounds like Germany in the 1930s. Well, I'm, right, that's, that's a very, Shahid, very, Shahid, very Shahid, terrible let's, analogy. Let's, let's leave Shahid. or go to jail? All right, let's leave uh, or let's go to jail. What's the, what's how is it, how is enforcing a neutral hear? rule of law equivalent to 
pre Yeah, that, that was a bit extreme. Shahid, we would like to hear if you were the mayor of San Francisco tomorrow, what would your approach be? Would it just be to build more housing, more housing, more housing? What, how would you tackle this problem? How would you, how, how would you, how would you grow the adequate amount of money on trees to pay for it as well? Right. So the mayor of San Francisco, no mayor can solve this problem. The reason I ran for Congress is because the federal government has abandoned this issue for a generation. And that's why we're having this conversation. So the, the whole premise of the conversation of the question, I would dare say, is somewhat confused. But again, we have to repeal the Faircloth Amendment and we need to invest substantial sums that only Congress can provide. That's where the money comes How from. How much sums? Five trillion, Plenty 10 trillion, 20 trillion? Where do we stop? Well, we just burned two in Afghanistan on a 20 year boondoggle. So, you know, I don't think anybody's two trillion would do literally even. nothing whatsoever to solve the present crisis, though. The last time the federal government invested any money in affordable housing, it was under $15 billion. That's the scale mm -hmm. that we abandoned 20 years ago. So in a commensurate inflation adjusted measure might be, you know, a half trillion. The mm -hmm. Green New Deal for public housing, for instance, was a proposal mm -hmm. that if we paired it with the repeal of Faircloth would have invested something on the order of $800 billion in creating new public housing and retrofitting existing public housing. These are investments that are not getting made and they haven't been made. And so this whole conversation we're having, I feel like is, you know, sort of uh, inventing a historical scenario that is uh, simply not the case. That is a market failure, not a policy failure that has driven us here. Now, there are, there are policy failures like the criminalization of not just homelessness. But if, you know, if we want to talk about the criminalization of poverty, nowhere demonstrates it better than, say, Ferguson, Missouri, where, you know, you have people, there's sort of a cycle here where you have government agencies literally funding themselves based on court fees, uh, people getting trapped in these cycles of public predation. And that's the issue here. And Los Angeles creates uh, presents a you know compelling case study here. If you think about Skid Row, any number of uh, folks, the LA Community Action Network's been quite outspoken about this practice where, you know, if you live in Skid Row and you're unhoused and you go to use the restroom, if an LAPD officer witnesses that, your stuff will get confiscated for being abandoned property. Jason, I would like you to respond to Shahid's argument. It is, is it, am I understanding you correctly that you feel that just building more housing would actually not solve the root cause of the rise in homelessness because it wouldn't address things like criminality, mental health, and addiction? Is that correct? Am I understanding you? The, the argument, at least in part, that Shahid is making is that uh, back in the 80s, we took away money from these hospitals and services, right? So we're talking about, in that case, folks who are dealing with mental health issues. They were not born homeless. They had a home. Because of their mental health issue or an addiction, they lost that home. And so building more homes doesn't address the root cause of what it is they're going through. And that's part of the issue here of why I keep saying, why are we talking about Reagan while also saying that part of the issue is not enough housing? Pick, pick a lane in some regard other than just conflicting talking points. This whole idea of rule of law is incredibly important because if you don't have any kind of consequence for illegal behavior, guess what happens? They continue the illegal behavior. So for example, exactly. constantly are stealing things and you can call it, you know, uh, these uh, criminalization of poverty. But if you're stealing, for example, a six pack of beer from the 7-Eleven, should you suffer a criminal consequence for that? I believe you should. Many people, not all, on the left believe you shouldn't. 
And so I think that this conversation is quite confused. It's not the rule of law understanding includes, what you're saying. The rule of law would include when police murder people, you face consequences. And the DAs you're describing around the country ran to enforce the rule of law against powerful, often public servants who violate it systematically around the country and have for a much longer time than people have been willing to have this conversation. The rule of law includes accountability for things like white collar crime, which has been entirely absent in this country for a generation. If you talk about the rule of law and you focus on street crime and you overlook the Pentagon telling the American people 20 years of lies to justify a $2 trillion endeavor to abuse human rights and create security crises around the world, that is a failure of law when you talk about uh, that's the definition of what rule of law is, though, and I think that that's Josh's point here. When when we're asking a general question of what is rule of law, and you say here's what it is not, that's not an actual definition. No, I'm 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 explaining how your construction of the rule of law is artificial and opportunistic, because you described law as accountability for neutral rules, and I'm describing to you how we in the United States know nothing of the sort. All right. right. So, so three questions later, we so have, we, we have not got an answer, you, but that's fine. We, we are running in circles here. We've got to take it to another quick commercial break. Again, you're listening to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We'll come back on the other side with a hopefully less circular and more substantive conversation. We'll be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Welcome back. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So, um, Jason, you've argued that we can't separate the homelessness crisis from the mental health crisis, from poverty and income inequality, and from addiction. And there's a lot of data to back up what you're saying. Um, in your state, um, uh, 18,000 inmates in the Washington state prison, for example, a prison system, 44% had mental health disorders, 51% had substance abuse disorders, and 31% had both of these diagnoses simultaneously. So, Shad, I'd love to hear you just respond to that point that Jason keeps making, which is that housing is um, perhaps a necessary but insufficient way of dealing with the homelessness crisis. Yeah, I've said several times in this conversation that it's a necessary and insufficient part of the solution. Housing is not the only solution. Services are a big one. To pretend that mental health is the primary driver of homelessness is itself a construction. I mean, we're chasing red herrings a lot in this conversation. Affordability is the driver for homelessness. Affordability is in crisis. There is not a single city in this country where a full-time worker making minimum wage can afford the market-based rent for a one-bedroom apartment. Pardon me, a two-bedroom apartment. Yeah, uh, two there are some cities. Yeah, there, there are some cities where you can afford a one-bedroom. San Francisco happens to not be one of them. Uh, you know, affordability is the underlying on that, on that one point, just because I think I'm glad you made that distinction. Uh, that study that comes out or survey that comes out every single year, we all get it. And, and obviously, let's look at it sort of big picture rather than city by city. Is it fair to judge what the uh, pay for one single person uh, and their 
unafford their inability to afford a two bedroom house. Is that fair? Why would when why you talk about families who works get a two bedroom house? Usually, usually that would include two people in the household, maybe even more. So this idea that you can't afford to get a market rent uh, apartment in these homes working your job and then comparing it to a two bedroom house seems disingenuous. Well, this is why a lot of people live increasingly in shared housing environments and cooperative housing environments. But just remember, there was a time in this country where we expected families to be able to survive, not necessarily on every person in the household working, right? That, that was a social expectation at one point in this country. And that might include, for instance, the opportunity for single parents to put their kids in a room other than their bedroom. And if that's part of the use case, as it were, and there are all kinds of you know, you started the program, Bhatia, I think, talking about the tens of thousands of, I think the number might have been 30,000 homeless kids in the country. All of them live in families. And if we want them to have rooms, yeah, Jason, that's going to be part of the solution. I get your point that not everybody, not every single individual needs a two-bedroom house. But again, when we, when we think of the actual reality here, which includes families, uh, it, that is, I think, part of what we would endeavor to supply. The the part here I want to get back to though is is the affordability crisis is one that we cannot solve through mental health services. And that is the issue that is and and you know we talked a little bit about healthcare and how that drives people in entirely too many instances into medical bankruptcy and homelessness. These are vital parts of the equation that when we try to have a conversation only about housing uh, we do, again, the issue with disservice because there are intersections that are driving this problem. The speculation-driven real estate market is one, inadequate uh, public health resources and public uh, access to insurance, or pardon me, to care, that is to say, not having universal health care is another vector. The devolution of public spending on services from uh, residential services for the mentally ill to job training and placement services. All of these things are intersectional causes. And the biggest single thing we could do to fix homelessness is to put people in homes. There's been a lot of specifics here, which has been excellent. There's also been a lot of kind of broader, higher level um, theories kind of clashing, I think, in the background here. So let's close this out with the following prompt. Um, Jason, perhaps you can kind of give a like slightly like higher level theoretical pushback against the notion that socialism, and let's not mince words, that's um, what's being proposed here, uh, against the idea that socialism is the remedy, the cure-all for the national homelessness epidemic. And then, Shahed, if you could then respond to that in kind. So let's let's turn it over to you first, Jason. I mean, I, I think this one is actually kind of easy. Uh, where, where socialism has failed is where socialism has been implemented. Where socialism has failed here in the United States, I know folks like to pretend we haven't gone far enough. It's because we've very clearly seen the failures. We do know at times where we didn't have this crisis of homelessness, we were not in a socialist country, uh, quite the opposite. We were very clearly further away from that than we are now. We had a respect for a rule of law. We had funding that, yes, went into mental health care and other issues, but also, and she brought it up, and I think this is really important, family, respect of family, understanding the role of family, which is something that we very clearly have gone away from. And, you know, the individual, if anyone on this call, uh, on this podcast, uh, suddenly found themselves on hard time and could not afford their rent, they would usually turn to a member of their family. 
and folks who don't have members of family to get to because we have decided to sort of almost purposefully deteriorate what family actually means and the role of family, they don't have people to turn to. So I think all of those issues are uh, connected. But the, the reason why uh, socialism, socialism wouldn't work here is because it doesn't work. We have history to show that. And Shahed, um, do you view history differently or do you think it will finally work this time? What do you think? Absolutely view history, I mean, more through the lens of reality. We don't have a socialist uh, history in the United States to reflect on as an object of failure. We have a capitalist history to reflect on as an object of failure. The, you know, we're having this conversation precisely because we haven't had any meaningful social intervention. I'll agree with Jason insofar as when people have struggles, they often go to their family. But from there, you know, it seems like, again, we have very differing views. The reason people in too many cases don't have family resources to fall back on is because everybody has been preyed on by the market. It's true in every sector, higher education, healthcare, housing, every one of those sectors, costs have gone through the roof over the last generation and worker pay has not. The federal minimum wage remains in 2021 in the same place that it was in 2009. The working class in this country has been fleeced systematically for generations. That's why people don't have resources. That's why when people, many people go to their families for help, there isn't any help to be found. And the reason is not a failure of socialism, that's a failure of policy to provide the social support that we, the American people, need to deal with the vagaries of the market. Uh, and when we talk about socialism as a remedy here, investments in public housing is a core one. And we've witnessed, you know, we're having this conversation about a crisis in homelessness in the wake of a 20-year abdication of any attempt at government intervention. So that history seems to reveal itself, to pretend that the failure of the moment and somehow has been driven by a set of policies we've never adopted does seem to overlook the fact that there are actual policies we can reflect on, cap capitalist policies, policies that defer to a market to provide what are ultimately basic human needs. And any basic human need should be a human right. Jason, Shahed, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank Thanks you so for much having for having us. Badia, that was definitely, I think, our tensest debate yet. Um, I think the tension was uh, palpable, the listeners would tell you. Um, didn't necessarily expect it to be on the homelessness debate. I thought we might reach a level of tension on, <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know, maybe like reparations or something. But um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the listeners enjoyed it at least. Yeah, it seemed like there were sort of two points of view that emerged. One is like, is housing really the kind of the most important thing here? Or are other issues really confounding factors that we should really be paying as much equal attention to? And uh, I think it was a, you know, I think I, I wish I would have learned more about solutions. But uh, it was great to hear both points of view. Yeah, I totally agree. If if we had to do it over, it definitely would have kind of probed a little deeper for some very concrete policy solutions, not necessarily at the federal level, but also at the local level. But it's okay. There's yeah. a, there's there's definitely always next time for sure. It was definitely a lively and fun and engaging discussion. And I, I, I hope the listeners enjoyed it. So if you did enjoy it, you can go ahead and leave us five stars at Stitcher, or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Art19, wherever you find your podcast. We very much encourage you to write a glowing review, although slightly less than glowing reviews are also acceptable. And we will see you next time at Newsies the Debate. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. 
Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.